Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 4, to the fourth psalm. It's been our pattern the last few summers to uh, select several psalms to preach uh, in this season. So please turn to Psalm 4. If you've ever taken an American literature course, you may have suffered the great misfortune of reading Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Pit and the Pendulum. I say suffer because this fictional work is absolutely horrifying. The story narrates the experience of an unnamed man who endures a punishment under the Spanish Inquisition. This man's specific punishment is to lie bound to a wooden frame as he can look up, and as he looks up, he sees a razor-sharp pendulum slowly descending from the ceiling, swinging uh, with the purpose to eventually kill him. I'm sure you all race home to hear how the story ends, but suffice it to say, the main theme of Poe's short story is the human experience of fear. The sensational and excruciating details of the tale force readers to, in some degree or another, enter into the main character's terror. And I believe one of the reasons that Poe's story has so much appeal is that every person understands fear. If you're a human being, if you're sentient, you understand fear. You experience anxiety and distress. My friend, I wonder what causes you fear this morning. What is the source of your distress? What is the source of your anxiety? Well, it is the experience of such distress and the need for relief that leads David to write Psalm 4, that leads him to call out to the Lord and express the words that we find in the fourth psalm. So with that in mind, would you read with me Psalm 4? David says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, Selah? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent, Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Would you pray once more with me? Father, we ask now that you would be merciful to us once more. And by your Spirit's power, would he impress upon us the meaning of this text. Lord, that we might apply it to our lives. Lord, help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, before I dive into expositing Psalm 4, I think it's worth us appreciating just a few brief points of context. And I guarantee you, I promise you, these will be brief points of context. And first, that's to say that Psalm 4 in our Psalter, in the Psalms, and also in Christian tradition, 
is paired with Psalm 3. So Psalm 3 is understood as the great morning psalm. Uh, your, in fact, your Bible might have that at the top of it, a morning psalm. And then Psalm 4 is the great evening psalm. So Psalm 3 includes the words that, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. While Psalm 4 closes with a resolution to sleep content in the care of God. So we should see Psalm 4 and Psalm 3 together. In fact, tomorrow morning you can wake up and you can read through and pray through Psalm 3. And then as you go to sleep tomorrow night, you can read through and pray through Psalm 4. It's a wonderful experience. Second point of context, in Psalm 4, David is in exile. If those psalms are to be viewed together, we should understand David to be in exile. And in fact, uh, his throne has been stolen from his son Absalom. You might notice Psalm 3 has the superscription that uh, David is in exile from his son. Therefore, the enemies that David addresses in Psalm 4, they're not the surrounding nations. Rather, they are his own kinfolk. They're people who have stolen the throne from David. The last point of context really isn't a point of context, but just, a, I think, a helpful preliminary remark, and that is that regardless of the exact circumstances of Psalm 4, I believe the psalm is ambiguous enough to maximize the application to all readers. It's just, pl it's just plain to us, right? Few of us have a literal kingdom, and few of us have a literal kingdom that will be stolen from us by a rebellious son, yet we all experience fear. We all experience opposition. We all experience anxiety, distress, and the dark night of the soul. In the time remaining, I want us to consider Psalm 4 under three headings. Three headings, if you're taking notes, this might help you. First, the nature of the psalm. Second, the commands of the psalm. And third, the convictions of the psalm. So first, the nature, then the commands, then the convictions of the psalm. Would you consider first with me, heading number one, the nature of the psalm. Psalm 4 is many things. It's made up of many parts. It's part earnest plea to God. It's part rebuke to the ungodly. It's part rehearsal and confession of God's blessing. It's part charge to those who would, who would desire godliness. It's part a sigh of distress and it's part resolved declaration of hope in God. It reflects on the past. It ponders the present. It surveys the future. It addresses the first, second, and third person. It has personal elements. It has corporate elements. It's urgent and restless. It's calm and trusting. It's internally cathartic. It's externally instructive. In a word, brothers and sisters, it represents the many facets of the Christian life. It faithfully represents the hearts of those who in the psalm, this psalm, and the psalms broadly call the godly. But if I'm going to reduce the, the nature of Psalm 4 to just two things, first, it is fundamentally a prayer for peace and joy. It's a prayer for peace and joy. Central to this prayer is David's desperate need for relief. Notice how the psalm begins. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. And notice how the psalm ends. Look at verse 8. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
What is this psalm? It is a prayer for peace and joy. Peace is David's desire. Relief. He wants shalom. He wants solace from the hand of God. Peace that only that the Lord can provide. Yet, this plea for peace is not the only burden of this prayer. Notice, secondly, it is instruction to the ungodly. David moves from addressing God to challenging the ungodly. He moves from pleading with God in verse 1 to rebuking and instructing his enemies in verse 2. He rebukes them in highlighting the futility of the world, and he instructs them in the way of godliness. So we might not know exactly who David's enemies are, but it's almost as if David is addressing God, and then in verse 2 he moves to address his enemies, and he's saying, look, here's the difference between you and me. I'm the godly, you're the ungodly, but you know what? It doesn't have to go that way. You can be godly like me. You can be counted among the righteous. Verse 2, David says, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Perhaps Scripture poses no more perpetually relevant question than the second half of Psalm 4, verse 2. O men, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? Friends, ever since Eden, men and women have chosen lies over the truth. This truth needs no convincing. Satan, who is indeed called a deceiver, has lured countless souls down the path of destruction through the utterance of falsehoods. Every generation presents brand new lies readily embraced by people of all colors, all backgrounds, and social status. Show me a culture, and I will show you their lies. Friend, show me your life, and I will show you the lies you tend to embrace. Show you my life, and you will see the lies I tend to live by. Friend, do you need convincing? Every way you turn, you'll find lies. Perhaps the greatest lie is that human beings, our souls, can be satisfied by something or someone other than God. The world promises satisfaction in power, money, and sex. Washington insists that the right policies might solve all of man's ills. The media presents a product of fear, but so long as that product of fear is packaged in the right narrative, it satiates our souls. The academy pledges that life's problems can be answered through science and medicine. The country club offers relief and relaxation as the purpose of life, and the psalmist says, O oh men, how long? How long will you seek after lies? How long will you bow down to false gods? O oh men, how long? Yes, brothers and sisters, perhaps you don't identify with David's audience here. Perhaps few of us would identify with the men that David indicts. Few of us would see ourselves as those who are rising up against David to, see, to seek and to steal his kingdom from him. But brothers and sisters, if we cannot identify with who David is indicting here, can we not identify with what he indicts? How many of us are content to merely attach the church to our lives when it's convenient? How many of us are cowed into living no different than our neighbors? How many of us are so easily charmed by creature comforts that never truly satisfy? How many of us are lulled into living lives and acting like Christ will never come back again? And perhaps 
The knees, your physical knees have not bowed to any gods, but your heart remains only half occupied by the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, surely we have all loved delusions. We have all sought after lies. We have loved vain words. And it's because of this that I want everyone in this room, including myself, to intensely focus on these next several verses because they're not just cautionary counsel for the ungodly, but they are food for the souls of those who would follow Jesus. Brothers and sisters, receive them as such. For those of you who long to grow in godliness and communion with the Lord, lend the psalmist your ears. His words are medicine for the sick that both invite sinners to come to him, to come to the Lord, while showing saints how to nurse and nurture fellowship with God. So what's the nature of this psalm? It's first a prayer for peace. It's a prayer for joy. But it's also instruction to the ungodly. And I would say it's instruction for us as brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Consider secondly with me, second heading, the commands of the psalm. The commands of the psalm. Perhaps you might notice more than I've noticed, but I've highlighted three today. I want to highlight three commands that we see in the psalm, and I've, I'm posing them just as simple, simple verbs. First command, no. No. David's first command to the ungodly is to know or to understand. He calls his hearers to understanding in verse 3. He says, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. I think it's been said here before in this place, but if you exist, you belong to God. The Lord asserts sovereignty and ownership over all his creation. The Lord, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein, the psalmists say. And if you're a person, he has knit you together when you were in your mother's womb. Indeed, you were made in the image of God. The Lord exerts a general sovereignty and ownership over all his creatures. Your brothers and sisters, that is not the truth that David is asserting here. David is asserting something so much more. Rather, David is commanding his hearers to understand that it is the godly who are set apart for God. It is the godly are, who are set apart for himself. God's people are his special possession. They are recipients of his special grace. They are heirs to his special promises. His favor rests on them in a way unlike any others. Friend, do you know this? There are only two types of people in the world. There are the godly and the ungodly. Only two types. Two ways to live, two types of people in the world, the godly and the ungodly. And if your trust is in Christ, if you have repented of your sins and you believe that it's his blood and his blood alone that covers your sins, then you are gloriously accounted among the righteous. You're gloriously accounted among what this psalm calls the godly. And you can expect, like David, that the Lord hears your prayers. But my friend, if you have not trusted in Christ today, children, if you have not trusted in Christ today, you're not counted among the godly. And I want you to know you want to belong to the godly. You want to be God's team. You want God to own you. You want to be a person of his special possession. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And I want you to know that if you're not a Christian today, you can become one right now, sitting in your pew, if you repent of your sins, if you trust in Christ, ask the Lord to save you. 
Romans 10.9 says, If you believe in your heart that the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord and that the Father raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. My friend, turn to Christ. But brothers and sisters, I want us to see something in verse 3. I want us to be encouraged. This is not just a statement of God's sovereign ownership of his people, but of his intimate delight in them. The Lord delights in his people. He finds pleasure in his people. He adores us. We can know that, the, that when God answers our prayers, he does not do so out of obligation. He doesn't do so out of some sense of duty, but he does so because he loves us, because he's satisfied in us. He finds pleasure in us. Have you ever met a truly generous person? Somebody you could describe as, as absolutely and completely and unselfishly generous. My mother-in-law is like this. She's a generous person. She had to sit me down when I got engaged to Aaron and said, Zach, you just have to get used to this. Um, I know you're not going to like this, but I get gifts for my kids. Uh, I get a lot of gifts for my children. It's because I love my children, and now you're a part of our family. You just got to accept the fact that I'm going to be blessing you all the time, and I want you to know there's no strings attached. There's no quid pro quo. There's, no, there's nothing I expect in return. I just love to see my children thrive. I just love to bless them. And quite frankly, this arrangement has worked quite nicely for me. I had no issue with this. Because if my mother-in-law's spiritual gift is generosity, my spiritual gift is receiving gifts. Nobody receives gifts better than me, brothers and sisters. But I digress. My, my point here, what is my point? is that true generosity includes delight. It includes a love for that person, a desire to do them good. It's not codependent. It's not quid pro quo. There is a level of satisfaction in the other. It's not born out of obligation. Emmanuel, God doesn't elect people out of a sense of duty. He doesn't save people merely because he thinks it's the right thing to do. He does so because he loves us. He does so because he delights in us. He finds pleasure in us. And I believe that truth might make some of us uncomfortable. Like we're elevating man. John Piper says in The Pleasures of God, God does not do you good out of some constraint or coercion. He is free. And in his freedom, he overflows in joy to do you good. So says John Piper, what does God's word say? Psalm 18, verse 19, he brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Zephaniah 3, verse 17, the prophet says to the people of God, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Can you imagine that? The almighty God. He spoke the earth into being with one word of utterance. And the Bible says he is going to sing over his people. He's going to exult in loud praises. My brothers and sisters, the Lord finds pleasure in his people. Hebrews 12, let us look to Christ, right, because of this great cloud of witnesses. Why should we look to Christ? It's because he endured the cross. In what spirit does the, does the writer say that he endured the cross? 
not for the obligation that was set before him, not for the duty that was set before him, but for the joy that was set before him. Isaiah 53, that great prophecy of the suffering servant, prophesies of of Jesus, how his blood and his passion will satisfy the wrath of God reserved for sinners. Remember how it describes the Lord's affections. Remember how it describes how he will look into his suffering and into his anguish. The prophet says, out of the anguish of his soul, speaking of Christ, he shall see and be satisfied. Brothers and sisters, let us rejoice. Let us rejoice in the pleasures of God to save sinners, the pleasure of God to answer our prayers, to relieve us in distress, and to draw near in times of need. What's the first command? The first command is to know, it is to understand. It is to know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Second command of the psalm, repent. Repent. David says in Psalm 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. He says, be angry and do not sin. That's how the ESV translates it. Some of you may have a translation that says tremble, tremble or, or, or stand in awe. I think those latter phrases are probably closer to the idea. What is David doing here? David is charging his readers to tremble and tremble through soul-searching self-reflection. He is calling them to repentance. The idea is that in light of the holiness of God, he charges them to consider the horror of sin and in doing so, to forsake sin. He says, ponder in your own hearts. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. What does that mean? What verse 4 is, brothers and sisters, it is an earnest call to sobriety and seriousness. It's a plea for reflection, for reverence, and for repentance. Brothers and sisters, I believe such self-examination and response is the urgent need of both unbelievers and believers. Non-Christians, for them, every sinner must consider his or her desperate state before a holy God. And perhaps not until they're able to get silent and quiet themselves will they ever see themselves as sinners and repent and turn to Christ. But brothers and sisters, we need the same silence. We need the same silence. Silence to reflect on our sin. Silence to let God speak to us. Silence to ponder and meditate on God's character. Silence to wait upon God and His salvation. The prophet speaks of such silence in Lamentations. He says in Lamentations 3, The Lord is good to those who hope in Him, to the one who seeks Him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Donald Whitney wrote a book called The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. It's a Christian classic. Every Christian, especially new Christians, should read this book, but you never get beyond the disciplines that Whitney teaches in, those, in that book. One of his final chapters is on the discipline of silence. Think about that. Have you ever considered silence to be a Christian discipline? It's there he offers a helpful illustration. He says, as daily sleep and rest refresh the body, so daily silence and solitude refresh the soul. 
These disciplines have a way of airing out the mind and ironing out the wrinkles of the soul. Friend, consider silence that way. It's airing out the mind. It's opening yourself up to the Lord. Lord, search me. Psalm 139, search me, search me. See if there be any evil way within me. It opens up the mind and it irons out the wrinkles of the soul. Well, brothers and sisters, what can we say here by way of application? First, consider the seriousness of sin. Brothers and sisters, consider the seriousness of sin. I don't think it's absolutely clear in this text, but I believe that when David calls his readers to tremble, he's calling them to do so in reference to the brightness of God's holiness and the bitter depravity of man's sin. Charles Simeon, commenting on this text, said, Death in its most terrific shapes has no terror in comparison to sin. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing in the natural order that is more vile than our own sin. And brothers and sisters, I'm talking to brothers and sisters, like I mean our sin. Friend, do you, does it, do you view your sin with terror? Does it grieve you? Does it humble you? Do you mourn over your sin? Or Christian, have you grown callous towards your sin? Or worse yet, do you even notice your sin? Now, brothers and sisters, I don't want us for a moment to forget that remaining sin is inevitable. Alex spoke about this this morning. But should, brothers and sisters, should we not reclaim a sense of fear of God? A fear of God that makes us tremble. A fear of God that makes us fear displeasing Him. And not for any loss of love for him, not for fear of rejection, but like, I love Jesus so much, I don't want to bring him any displeasure. And I love Jesus so much that I know how much my sin, what my sin did to him. It led him to the cross. Brothers and sisters, for every transgression of God's people, the Lord Jesus endured the bitter passion of the cross. It took the blood of the Son of God to pacify the wrath reserved for sin. Should this not make us fear? Should this not make us tremble? Should this not humble us? Cause us to be still. Ponder in our own hearts and in our beds and be silent. Brothers and sisters, consider the seriousness of sin. Application two, consider the discipline of silence and reflection. Consider the discipline of silence and reflection. I fear that Christians in our day have mastered the art of silence avoidance. We scrupulously shun silence at all costs. If we're home alone, I gotta have the TV on and music playing. Our commutes must be drowned out by the sound of podcasts and books on tape. And God forbid, even in our services, if we ever have a moment of silence, this makes us uncomfortable, I need to hear people speaking, I can't let God speak to me in the silence. Brothers and sisters, the Lord works through silence. The Lord works through quiet. Christian, is silence any regular feature of your life? Or do you avoid it at all costs? Blair, drown it out with the white noise. Friend, do you know how to be alone with God? Husbands and wives, are you providing your spouse with the opportunity for silent reflection and time with the Lord? 
Is this a value in your marriage? I know couples that reserve dates on their calendar for spiritual retreat. Like, honey, I'm going to watch the kids this Saturday so you can get alone with God. You have business to do. You need to know him better. You need to get alone with the Lord. Spouses, have you considered this? Church, are we uncomfortable with silence when we gather together? Brothers and sisters, we need silence. We need time for self-reflection. We need to take inventory of our hearts. John Flavel was a Puritan, and he wrote a work called Keeping the Heart. If you're unfamiliar with the Puritans, this is the best book you can read by the Puritans. Say from Pilgrim's Progress, it's also the best introduction you can have to the Puritans. John Flavel, Keeping the Heart. And it's there that Flavel pleads the importance of examining the heart. Listen to Flavel. He says, Oh, study your hearts. Watch your hearts. Keep your hearts. Turn in upon yourselves. Get into your closets. And now resolve to dwell there. You have been strangers to this work too long. You have kept others' vineyards too long. This world has detained you from your great work too long. Will you now resolve to look better at your hearts? And he presses in on his readers even more. He says, all that I beg for is that you would step aside a little more often to talk with God and your own heart and demand this of your own heart at least every evening to ask, oh my heart, where have you been today? Where have you made a road today? Christian, have you considered such self-reflection, such examination of your own heart? It sounds an awful lot like Psalm 4. Verse 4, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Christian, have you learned how to commune with God? And not as some monastic exercise, but as a means to pursue thorough repentance and fellowship with the Lord. Well, what does David command? First, he commands his readers to know. Second, he commands them to repent. And thirdly, he commands them to worship and trust God. To worship and trust God. He says to offer right sacrifices. To offer right sacrifices, what does that mean? Well, to offer right sacrifices implies wrong sacrifices, right? So it's worth asking, what would wrong sacrifices be in David's day? Well, it could be a host of things. It could be certain rituals and rites offered to a false god, somebody who is not Yahweh. Or it could be, it could be false rituals and rites offered to the true god. Or... It could be proper sacrifices offered to God without loyalty and love for God. It's a wrong sacrifice. What's a right sacrifice? In David's day, this would have involved all the prescribed rituals of the Mosaic Covenant. But even then, as today, all rites of worship were futile if unaccompanied by a heart devoted to God. You understand that? This is why the Lord says in Hosea 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He says, I desire steadfast love, that is, hesed, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 
This is why David elsewhere in his great repentance psalm of Psalm 51, he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. It's not that the rituals and rites of the old covenant didn't matter to David then, but God wanted your heart. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The prophet says in Isaiah, these people worship me while their lips and their hearts are far from me. Brothers and sisters, this is not to say that God does not care about outward measures of worship, but he is primarily concerned with matters of the heart. He's primarily concerned with how you live your life. He's concerned with the disposition of your heart. As new covenant saints, our ultimate sacrifice is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus Christ that we are to now offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. This includes what happens right now as we sit under the preaching of God's word, as we worship him in song, as we declare praises and recite confessions and creeds. It matters what we do right now, but it matters the other six days of the week as well. Paul tells us in Romans that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life, it's a house where every corner of every room is consecrated. Every square inch is raised and consecrated and set apart for God. There are no untidy corners of the human heart. Our entire beings, our entire souls, life, body, and strength are for God. David says to offer right sacrifices. He then says to trust in God. What does it mean to trust in God? Jerry Bridges has helpfully defined trust in God in his book, Trust for God. He says, trust is not a passive state of mind. Rather, it is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold of the promises of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. Friend, that is what trust is. It's not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act. It's an act of the soul where we cling to God's promises and oh, how many promises do we have? Friend, cling to them. That is what trust is. And you might be wondering, what does this trust look like? Well, we don't have to look any further than Psalm 4. Psalm 4 itself is an expression of trust. First, it entails awareness of God's promises. David knew that God had set apart the godly for himself. How did he know that? He knew that because that was a promise that God had given to his people. He knew that God had set apart the godly for himself. He also would have been quite familiar with the promises attached to the Lord's anointed because he was the Lord's anointed and he clung to those promises. He could say, God, you have promised A, B, C, so I expect and I'm holding you to A, B, and C. He had awareness of the promises of God. But friends, he also had actual experience with God. He had communion with God. David could do more than recall God's promises. He could recount of God's personal faithfulness to him. Like in time, he could reflect upon experiences. He had experience with God. 
It's one thing to believe someone's promises, like taking somebody at their word. But it's another thing entirely to have personal experience of that person's faithfulness. Some of you couples have worked this out. You know what I'm talking about. Like in marriage. I know there are things about my wife that are true and there are things about my wife that are not true. I know there are things that my wife will do and there are things that my wife won't do, partly because there were vows we made several years ago to one another. There were promises we made to one another, and I know my wife's not going to violate those promises. I trust her. But I have so much deeper trust for her because it's born out of experience with her. I know my wife. I know her. I know what she will do and what she won't do. I know it's born out of years of experience with her. I have communed with her. I started a family with her. I know her, that her character, it's been up close and personal to me for years. I've had dealings with her, and so has she with me. And so it was with David. He could recall the record of God's faithfulness to him personally. David knew what it was like to suffer wrong, only then to experience the Lord's vindication. David knew what it was like to fall into sin, only then to be granted repentance and forgiveness. David knew what it was like to wallow in the pit. He knew what it was like to be in the miry bog, only to have his Lord lift him and put his feet firmly upon the rock. He had had experience with God. He had had dealings with the Lord, and the Lord had had dealings with him. He could look to the book of his life And on each page, she could read the words, faithful, faithful, faithful. My God is one in whom I can trust. And he is calling on his readers in Psalm 4, put your trust in God. Put your trust in God. Put your trust in God. Trust Yahweh. Christian, do you have something of this trust? Christian, have you acquired the discipline of trust? Can you deliberately trace God's faithfulness in your life year by year, month by month, day by day, moment by moment? Or could it be, friend, the reason that your faith so often fails is you think little of your experience with God. You've never paused to ponder and consider His providence and kindness to you and tease it out through each thread of your life. You've never paused to take account of His work in your life. Brothers and sisters, let us learn to exercise the discipline of trust. Let us learn to declare with David in Psalm 40, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet there are more than can be told. Friends, let us declare the goodness of God. Let us rehearse the goodness of God to us personally. And in doing so, we will not only grow in our trust for God, but we will winsomely display to a lost world a God worth trusting. David calls on his readers to know. He calls on them to he calls on them to repent. He calls on them to worship and trust. These are the commands of the prayer. Consider with me the last heading, the convictions of the psalm. We've considered the nature the commands. Now, thirdly, the convictions of the psalm. I use the word convictions 
because I'm speaking of the truths that ground the prayer of this psalm, that ground David's petitions and his assurance before the ungodly. I have two. First, the Lord gives peace. David's assurance is in the Lord's peace. It's what bookends the prayer. Remember, verse 1 and 8, they they bookend this this concern and this assurance in the peace of God. Verse 1, you have given me relief when I was in distress. And then verse 8, in peace. In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. Brothers and sisters, what lifts the saint from the dark night of the soul? It is the light of the peace that comes from God alone. It is the light of the peace that comes from God and God alone. This may be the most repeated theme in the Psalms. That is that peace and security is found only to those who put their trust in Yahweh, who put their trust in God. Psalm 46, the Lord is our refuge and strength. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains quake, or the earth quakes and the mountains are lifted and fall into the midst of the sea, we will not fear. Why? Because we have made God our refuge. We have found within the Lord a hiding place. He gives us security. He gives us solace. He gives us shalom. We can rest securely in the arms of Christ. There are few things that God wants his people to know with greater assurance. Those who rest in God are met with peace. Brothers and sisters, we are safe. Leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms, safe and secure from all alarms. This is what leads the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, verse 6 and 9 to say, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your hearts be made known to God. What's grounding that command that you should not be anxious It's the assurance that the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Christian, look to no other. Look to no other. God is the only one who will give you peace. And this is so important because I know there are some of you that are wondering, how can I be sure that I have this peace What's going to ground my insurance? How can I know I'm secure? How can I know I'm protected? How can I know? Brothers and sisters, it is because there is a place called Calvary where the Father sent His Son to be lifted upon a Roman cross and His body was broken for those who trust in Him. His blood flowed and it is shed for those who trust in Him. And the promise is to you and to everyone in the sound of my voice, if you turn to Christ, if you trust in Him, if you find Him alone to be your hiding place, you will have peace. You will have security. The Apostle Paul says that Christ has reconciled us to Him. We've read it already this morning. He's reconciled us to God by making peace by the blood of His cross. Christian, if you trust in Christ, I assure assure you, You have this peace. Conviction one, the Lord gives peace. Conviction two, the Lord gives joy. 
Verse 6 of Psalm 4. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. I mentioned to you earlier that perhaps the greatest lie ever told is that there's something or someone who can satisfy you other than God. My friends, that is a lie that comes from Satan. But if that is the great lie, what is the great truth? Friends, the great truth is that those who trust in God are forever satisfied in the Lord Himself. Augustine once said, he cried out to God in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. Friends, David knew of such restlessness. David knew that people are never fully satisfied in wealth. The abundance of food and wine can only go so far. Human relationships inevitably disappoint, but in God. In God, the human heart not only rests securely, but rests satisfied. The Lord God is the only one who brings rest and joy to weary souls. Indeed, the Christian life is one of inexpressible and glorified joy. Psalm 94 speaks of this joy that satisfies in this God who satisfies. He says, when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Psalm 16, verse 11, you have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Christian, do you believe it? The Lord satisfies us. The Lord gives us joy. Emmanuel Church, as we depend upon the promises of God, let us find ultimate peace and joy in Him and Him alone. I want to close with just two brief applications. Two brief applications. First, to non-Christians that are here today. To those of you who are lost. Friend, come to Christ for joy. Come to the Lord Jesus for joy. Every person wants joy. Every person wants satisfaction. Every person wants happiness. But sadly, so many people, they look to other sources for joy. Some look for joy in highs that they can get from drugs or alcohol. Some in experiences. Some in relationships they seek for joy. Some in just innocent pedestrian pleasures. My friend, the Bible teaches that to be outside of Christ is to thirst. To be outside of Christ is to hunger. It's to willow, wither away under the power of sin. It's to hunger. It is to thirst. It is to be famished. But to be in Christ, to be in Christ is joy. To be in Christ is joy unspeakable. To be in Christ is to have our souls satisfied, to find rest. To be in Christ is to come for water and have our hearts overflowing with joy. To be in Christ is to come to the bread of life and to be satisfied. 
My friend, God is pleased to meet all of your needs in Christ. And the Lord Jesus himself, his offer to you, his invitation to you is to come. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden. Come to me and you will find rest. Repent, friend. Turn away from your sin and trust in Christ. The prophet in Isaiah 55 says, Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Friend, incline your ear and come to Christ. Hear that your soul may live. My last application is to the church. Brothers and sisters, let us grow in faithfulness to remind one another of the promises of God. Let us grow in faithfulness to remind each other of the promises of God. You don't have to be a member of a church very long to know that there are, there are some of us who are suffering. There are some of us who are crippled by anxiety. There's some of us who are plagued by remaining sin. And there's some of us who are so lonesome. Lonesome traveling in the valley of the shadow of death. And what we need is the ministry of Christ through his people. We need a church. We need brothers and sisters. We need a family. We need people to come alongside of us, to put their arm around us, to lock arms with us and tell us the promises of God, to keep us clinging, to hold our arms up, to grab our fist on that promise and hold it tight there. We need a church, we need our brothers and sisters to be faithful, to remind us. Too often that anxious child of God who cannot sleep at night, they don't need another sleeping pill. But they need fresh remembrance of a faithful promise. And they need it from the mouth of their brother and sister in Christ. Are you there for them? Are you there for me? Are we there for each other? Charles Spurgeon says on Psalm 4, how many of our sleepless hours might be traced to our untrusting and disordered minds. But they slumber sweetly, who faith rocks to sleep. No pillow so soft as a promise, and no blanket so warm as a assured interest in Christ. Brothers and sisters, let us learn to stir one another with the promises of God.